Before we begin today's episode, we'd like to thank our corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, for their generous support. Fiduciary Trust International helps families with significant wealth manage that wealth and the complexities that come with it across the generations. Building your legacy is about more than just managing your investments. Fiduciary Trust International helps you look at your wealth holistically today and plan effectively for your future. They will help you structure your wealth so you can enjoy it now and provide maximum benefit to your heirs and the causes you care about. If you're looking for trust, estate, and advanced tax planning services to help you grow and protect your wealth, check out Fiduciary Trust International at fiduciarytrust.com. What is mythic about Wagner's Lohengrin and Die Fliegende Hollander? Why are these characters so stamped on our imaginations once we have experienced them? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is made possible via generous funding from its corporate sponsor, Fiduciary Trust International, and support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. Travel with us. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is pleased to announce the return of our travel program. This autumn, join fellow opera lovers for a lyric festival at sea from Rome to Malaga aboard the Deluxe La Liral. Sailing September 30th through October 8th, 2023, this voyage is designed to explore the artistic intersection of architecture and music through visits to concert venues across the Western Mediterranean. With visits to Teatro dell'Opera, Palau de la Musica Catalana, and Teatro Principal de Palma, this is sure to be an experience you won't want to miss. For more information or to book your cabin, please visit www.metguild.org travel or call us at 888-400-1082. Mythos, myth, legend, and folk art were all topics that captivated Richard Wagner when he was no longer satisfied with realistic situations and the confines of time and space. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast, we have the first of two episodes exploring the myth and mythos of Wagner's male characters, featuring Guild lecturer Desiree Mays. In this first episode, she'll explore the idea of myth and mythos and how it is presented through the doom-ridden Dutchman. Today's talk, of course, is mythos and Wagner's mythic men. But in order to get to those mythic men, I think we first have to understand what myth is. Um, so we're going to talk about, I'll talk quite a bit about that. I've done almost a big research survey on this. Everyone I meet, what does myth mean to you? You'll, uh, you'll see. So let's start out with the sound of myth, the in indescribably beautiful theme of the Holy Grail that opens the prelude to Lohengrin. This music is mystical, magical, marvelous, meaningful. Wagner divides his violins into four parts, all playing in the upper regions of their registers, 
suggesting color in the orchestral textures, the color of the vastness of a clear blue soft sky. A vision of the Holy Grail begins to form in the ethereal blue as the keys change from A to E to D major. Woodwinds join the strings and then the brass and the full orchestra, always in a slow, elegiac tempo until we are completely immersed in the sound. This is how Wagner himself described the prelude. Out of the clear blue ether of the sky, there appears to condense a wonderful yet at first hardly perceptible vision. And out of this there gradually emerges ever more and more clearly an angel host bearing in its midst the sacred grail. As it approaches the earth, it exudes exquisite colors like streams of gold ravishing the senses of the beholder. The glory of the vision continues to grow until it seems as if the rapture must be shattered and dispersed by the very vehemence of its own expansion. The vision draws nearer and a climax is reached when at last the grail is revealed in all its glorious reality, radiating fiery beams and shaking the soul with emotion. The beholder sinks to his knees in adoring self-annihilation. That's Wagner's take on his own prelude. Now, aware of the word, these words, I invite you to visualize this vision as you listen to a little of the overture. Imagine those clear blue skies, the image of the Holy Grail as it appears in the distance. The critics this last week have highly praised conductor Yannick Nezitsegrin's interpretation of this musical, mystical overture describing in the Times Sagan's, quote, shimmering, fragile interpretation without being wispy. Sometimes it often is. It's too thin. He does a beautiful interpretation, building with lyrical flow to a stirring climax. So this is the first piece of music I'm going to play for you today, about four and a half minutes, actually, so it's a little longer. I encourage you to leave your life, your thoughts, and your mind outside this room and begin to focus on this beautiful music.
So there's no bombast here, just a gentle, barely heard theme that flows like a mist through the ether across the stage where mythic struggles, journeys, and resolutions will take place. As Lohengrin embroils us in a milieu of fantasy, dreams, reality, and myth. So what is myth? I'd like to start out with this quote. Myth is something that never was, yet always is. Think about that. This is from uh, Philip Cousineau's book, Once and Future Myths, and we'll come back to this. Now, Wagner studied Greek drama and Greek mythos at length. He wrote, the incomparable thing about mythos is that it is true for all times, and its content is inexhaustible throughout the ages. Mythos is the poet's ideal stuff, for in it there almost vanishes the conventional form of man's relations to show instead the eternally intelligible, the purely human, in just such a concrete form which lends to every sterling myth an individual shape so swiftly recognizable. The poet T.S. Eliot said, and his take on this is, humankind cannot bear too much reality, but humankind can bear myth. How do we define myth then? The word means different things to different people. There is no easy answer. I asked my son for an example of myth. Now, Rory lives in the Bay Area and recently had to uh, keep the flooding, the, the, the water from a nearby stream from overflowing into his house. He reported firmly that his, at once, he said his favorite myth is that of Dis Sisyphus, doomed to keep pushing that rock up the hill just as Rory has to keep the water out of his house. <laughs> so myth can have a personal dimension. In fact, I was quite taken by the fact that when people came up with a myth, um, it, there was a clear connection with them to the myth. My 15-year-old grandson stated off the top of his head, he said, myth is about supernatural or people who do supernatural impossible things that teach people how to live. That's a pretty good interpretation. So myth is not real or tangible. It's not something you can touch. Um, it doesn't exist per se. That's true. Myth is revealed in the telling of stories, in the handing down over generations, accounts and tales of wonder and achievement. Myth is maybe a synonym for story, and not any story, but one of heroism and supernatural deeds. The very word comes from the Greek meaning tale or story, and the keepers of myths are historians and storytellers. Myth and this is an interpretation from the teacher, Kumaraswamy. Myth is the traditional vehicle of man's profoundest metaphysical insights. Myths are timeless. They have the ability to explore timeless concerns. Myth is accessible to everyone who dreams, to those who make the impossible possible. Joseph Campbell, the great guru of myth, states we have only to follow our dreams take the risks, and mythic status can be achieved. Myth is embodied in those who share their achievements, their learnings, their enlightenment with the rest of us, with their communities. Myth is not only for supernatural beings of the past, but for beings, human beings then and now, who accomplish supernatural deeds, men and women who devote their lives to fulfill dreams and hopes 
regardless of the suffering and challenges that this may entail. Myths live on because they resonate and leap out of the creative world into the world of real people who imitate it, embody it, maybe reject it, analyze it, because it teaches something about our world and perhaps something about ourselves and our lives. To find such a person in today's world, let's look at a man who was, is, was a legend and who has been in the news recently, Pele, simply known as Pele. Now, he might not fit your idea of myth, but think he meets the criteria. His supernatural achievements in football, followed by his bringing together his countrymen all for love of him, a man who by example showed people how to live. When Pele died recently, Brazil, for one glorious moment, came together as one united people. His story will be told for generations to come, giving hope to the near hopeless and inspiration to the masses. So maybe it is all about storytelling, and in Pelle's case, this can happen for children and adults alike. Carl Jung said, myth is poetic fantasy from prehistoric times, a repository of allegorical instruction, a group dream, symptomatic of archetypal urges within the human psyche. He talks of a process of individuation, a lifelong process in which an individual strives to become a whole and complete human being. The goal is not to be perfect, but to be complete within oneself. In our so-called enlightened age, it seems as if the dream web of myth has fallen away. We're not sure what it is we seek. We may, like Parsifal, be emerging out of the forest, both innocent and ignorant. Maybe this very loss of belief in myth in the 21st century is why we are so drawn to the philosophical and psychological dramas of Richard Wagner and to Parsifal in particular. Going back further in time, let me remind you of a marvelous story from antiquity which demonstrates how an old story or myth still has an impact on us today in the 21st century. The tale is of Icarus, or more importantly, about his father, Daedalus. This is a story we first heard in childhood. Daedalus and his son Icarus were imprisoned on the Isle of Crete. Yeah, of course, this is a Greek myth. The only way to escape, Daedalus re reasoned, was by air, if he could fly away. Daedalus was an inventor. He availed himself of the tools at hand, feathers and wax, and built four giant wings that would allow them both to fly to freedom. Who has not dreamed at one time or another of being able to fly like a bird? Before leaving, however, Daedalus instructed his son not to fly too close to the sun, for its heat would melt the wax in the wings. Now, there generally are instructions in the world of myth. Do not eat of the forbidden fruit, starting there or do not ask the forbidden question in many tales, and especially in Lohengrin. Daedalus and Icarus fly out, but Icarus, not heeding his father's instruction, flies too close to the sun, the wax melts, and he hurtles to his death below. Have we, too, not had that experience, when we push too hard, disobey rules, and risk getting burned and crashing? Daedalus flew a middle course, not too high or too low, and he survived, 
but he lost his son. So flight has always been an inspiration for earthbound men. It's a perfect metaphor for the longing of the spirit, for independence from the body, the land, even time itself. Daedalus's task was seemingly impossible, and yet he achieved it. This is one great story of unimaginable accomplishment. The myth was told and retold. It was written down, passed on, always with the instructions to heed the rules and take caution. The myth has endured across time to this day, and this story still provides inspiration. The Wright brothers made flight a reality. Inventors, scientists, physicists all picked up on Daedalus and his bold venture into flight. And today we are flying to the moon and space flight itself is becoming a reality. Even Daedalus might be surprised at that all those years ago. But it is in storytelling that the myth has perpetuated what at the time appears to be an accomplishment of supernatural dimensions emerges as myth in the telling of the tale and the story spreads across generations and the globe itself. So mythic tales inspire, boost hope, and enlighten, transforming beliefs. And sometimes myths become reality, as in this example. So opera is an ideal vehicle for myth, for both opera and myth are ephemeral. Both only exist in the moment of performance or in the moment of telling the story. We know opera exists because we buy tickets and we go to the theater and we experience again and again the mythic tales set not only to words but to music. Music itself carries us far beyond the language of words. What is unspoken in the score can be felt. We are emotionally and unconditionally in Wagner's hands. His music can be very personal and meaningful in some mystical sense, and this is achieved by the setting to music of characters who are focused, alive, determined, with a mindset of single purpose as they pursue seemingly impossible goals. Mythic characters have always brought people together on a shared purposeful path to a common humanity, in signposting the way to an understanding of the meaning of life and what is possible for us humans. Mythic characters show us how to lead our lives. Those knights in shining armor, such as Lohengrin, knights of the round table, the knights of the grail. But they also show us how not to live our lives, as demonstrated by characters who are cursed, like the Flying Dutchman. I'm going to quote for you now um, some from this book by Phil Cousineau, Once and Future Myths, a book I encourage you to read if you're interested in this topic. Uh, Phil Cousineau was a disciple and a student of Joseph Campbell's. He said, Man since the beginning of time looked toward the sacred, an eternal order of things to dignify life with greater meaning. The search for the sacred equates with the human quest for meaning. Human culture can be understood through mythology. The origins of things encountered between good and evil, the nature of destiny and the very meaning of life are all addressed in mythology. Walk the path of inner possibilities, Cousineau suggests, and be guided past the gateway monsters of materialism and meaninglessness. Myth, Cousineau says, is many-faced. One faces the ancient world with its gods and its goddesses, heroes and monsters, 
The other faces inward, is personal and soulful. The urge to tell stories goes back to the earliest records of mankind. Ritual gatherings and ceremonies were and are a means whereby we can relive these stories over and over again. Opera is a form of ritual whether we are reading about it, observing or listening to these narratives. It is not simply answers we are seeking, it is understanding. The way to genuine understanding is contained in great works of music cannot, however, be a purely intellectual exercise. It must go hand in hand with an emotional response. Mythic drama was understood by the Greeks to be a cathartic experience, not just entertainment. The existence of myth balances out the overly technologic and rational world in which we live in today. There's a universal need now more than ever to bridge the gap between an individual's isolated consciousness and the environment in which we live. Myth and folklore are important elements that help convey these deeper messages as to the meaning of it all. Brian McGee, in his little book that I love, Aspects of Wagner, a little small book you should all carry with you on flights wherever you're going to hear a Wagner opera, um, discusses Wagner's central theory of what an opera should be. He said it takes its subject matter from myth which illuminates human experience to the depths in universal terms. So myth here is understood as an exploration of man's inner experience dealing with archetypal situations, regardless of time or place. Wagner set his tales in mythical or quasi-mythical terms. Their content is universal and therefore deliberately generally not set in any one place or time. Wieland Wagner shocked audiences in Bayreuth when he presented his grandfather's operas on a totally bare stage with only lighting for effect. And actually, in terms of settings, we're thinking about settings, something that is true for all of us, um, both individually and collectiveness, we, we collect a certain myths on which we are raised. Take, for example, the myth of the American West. This particular myth comes with an extraordinary landscape, but it is also myth that has changed over time, as some myths can and have to change. Here in this country, we too, of course, have our own myths from the beginnings with the founding fathers who guided the country into being, giving birth to the American dream, along with the myth of the American West, the culture of the buffalo and all that goes with it. The myth of the cowboy, however, is a dying myth. Myths can die, and this one is not being replaced. There's no more buffaloes, and there are very few cowboys. The frontier life is a thing of the past. That myth has passed on. One may ask, are there any fragments of the myth of the American West left, bringing this close to home? One facet that does and will always remain is the mythic vistas of the West, which is suggested here. Monolithic landscapes still exist, while the stories played out against these landscapes have changed. The class, clash of mythic past with current empirical imperience seems to edge out the possibility for myth, leaving behind an empty, if mythic, landscape. The very word myth has changed. Today's usage of the word has been trivialized, having traveled far from the original intent or meaning 
of the word according to the Greeks and their predecessors. Our 21st interpretation of the word myth, one hears bandied about all the time, um, suggesting that myth is fantasy, an untruth, a lie, wishful thinking, or is just a hopeless quest that is either impossible, implausible, or impractical. In these last words, we have a clue as to why the shift. Today, we seem to be so grounded in reality. Anything not understood is dismissed as impossible, implausible, or impractical. Let practicality rule. And of course, today, there is also the very real possibility of false myths, something we're now very familiar with, right? Which are designed to mislead, lead us astray with what, what, is, what truly are lies, and we have to discern the difference. Now, opera has little time for practicality. In fact, the further reaching, the harder the task, however formidable the foe, is seen as a challenge and totally acceptable in the world of opera. We buy into it, resurrecting perhaps something in our psyches from the past, making dreams, hopes, and magnificent challenges doable manifesting heroes and myths right, left, and center. Maybe we really do need opera and all kinds of musical stories. Think of Don Quixote, the mythical knight tilting at those windows, seeking wrongs he could right with incredible heart. This fictional story by Miguel Cervantes first appeared in 1605. Since then, there have been hundreds of versions of this story in literature, in poetry, in music, in art, ballet, musicals, and opera. We all know this story. Think of Massenet's Don Quixote from 1910, or more recently, the musical The Man of La Mancha in 1965. So the hit song from La Mancha describes perfectly, actually, the mythic quest. Possible dream to fight the unbeatable foe, to bear with unbearable sorrow, to run where the brave and not go, to right the unrightable wrong, to love your and chase from afar, to thrive. Where your arms are too weary To reach the unreachable star This is my quest To follow that star No matter how hopeless And no matter how far To fight for the right Without question or force To be willing to march into hell for Scorn and cover with scars Still strong with 
his last sons of Corinth. So now, how does all of this relate to Richard Wagner, a man with a very live sense of the mythic in all he saw, read, and composed, in the tales of the past, and in his overriding sense that he was the chosen one to take on the task of presenting and revealing myth to others throughout his music? Wagner has been described as a myth in and of himself. The man lived voraciously. He composed, wrote compulsively, while completely convinced of his great mission. While Wagner the man is long gone in human terms, his music, the fruits of his labor, live on, inspiring us and thrilling us, audiences worldwide. Whenever we enter a theater, over and over again, his universal dreams come through through music. Wagner himself was, as you know, a sorely tested and difficult man. He was, is, his own myth. Agreeing with Wagner, Brian McGee concurs that the man may be found in his creations, in the characters he created who become part of his own mythic journey. Wagner actually said, and this says it all, I only exist in the performance of my works. Think about that. This is a quote to take to heart when listening to this music. From an early age, Wagner immersed himself in the old myths. Disgusted with the all-too-real world he found around him as a young man, he quite consciously transcended the, ordi the ordinary, the everyday, and the mundane by surrounding himself and us with mythic tales set to music that transcend the norm. 
All of his major creative works happened in a time frame of around 40 years, from the age of 30 in 1883 to his death at the age of 70, time in which, I would argue, he became a legend himself, coming from nothing to becoming first uh, a radical insurrectionist, then a young man who traversed and absorbed all the mythic literature he could lay his hands on. Over a period of years, he developed his own philosophy and wrote how his future compositions would change the world of music. Incredibly, all this came to pass. The inexplicable power and beauty of his music made him a legend and is still with us today. Wagner's music has achieved mythic status, one could argue, and many do. But Wagner the man followed the path to greatness, admittedly, with many major bumps along the way. He was focused, determined, ruthless, on a mission to transform music at whatever cost. Life presented him with many challenges right from the start. He lived in poverty. He found no support or recognition. He was frequently in debt and even jailed. He was exiled from his beloved Germany, yet never lost sight of his goals in spite of countless trials and tribulations. He managed to produce amazing music. He never rested on his laurels, even when, in the early days of Rienzi and the Flying Dutchman, he did win hard-earned success. But he didn't stay there. He viewed these early operas as testing grounds for what he really would achieve in the future. So facets of Wagner himself can be found in all his operas, in the flawed gods of the ring, in the impossible love of Tristan and Isolde, even in the seemingly simple Hans Sachs, as I'll show you. Wagner was an instigator of change until the end of his life, ending his career with a sacred offering, Parsifal. So in Wagner's case, is it in the experience of his tales and music that myth becomes immortalized, in the ongoing experience of fantastic tales that never wane or fade, but rather become more and more meaningful as time passes? What does it take to fulfill these impossible dreams of greatness, not just for Wagner, but for anyone, be they gods or humans? There is a need for commitment, dedication, determination, single-mindedness of purpose, along with utter faith in oneself. There can be no fear of stepping outside one's comfort zone. One must be prepared to take leaps into the unknown. One may be set apart, risking possibly everything in the endeavor to achieve the goal. So these conditions describe Richard Wagner, but they also describe the characters he created. So they may be perceived as an extension of himself. We'll look at some of these characters in this regard to see how they fit the criteria and ask if these are the means by which mythic status is achieved. There is a process, a journey which all must take, a path to follow to achieve goals, no matter how lofty or simple. Both Wagner, his characters, and by extension we, the recipients of his art, all make this journey together, one way or another. Wagner's work resonates with us still in that we recognize and empathize with, sometimes even learn, from these creations 
in ways unavailable elsewhere. So what is the criteria then for mythic men in Wagner's work? Wagner created many magnificent men, both good and evil, human and supernatural. We're going to look at four of them in particular, the doomed of Fliegende Hollander, Lohengrin, the supernatural Swan Knight, Die Meistersingers, all too human Hans Sachs, and Parsifal in his journey to become a Knight of the Grail. Joseph Campbell is the go-to person, of course, for anything on myth. <laughs> um, and he puts it simply in three words. He said, myth is made up of departure or separation, fulfillment or enlightenment, and return. The creative process then, and I very humbly put this on the same page as Joseph Campbell, um, this comes from Life is a Creative Process, a radio series, uh, actually it was an award-winning series that I produced many years ago, and it sort of says the same thing. The first stage is one should be able to free associate. Be curious, take risks, look for connections of things. Bits of pieces of the puzzle will start assembling. That is departure. The second stage then is insight or illumination, that moment of, aha, this is what it's about, and the connections begin to connect. Finally then is the return, which is the, the hard work bit in a way because you have to test what you found you have to refine and clarify it, you have to compose, you have to complete, and then you have to present and share with other people. The process, the journey itself then, is fairly straightforward. It starts with searching for some as yet undefined goal, followed by an intimation or illumination of what is possible. Then comes the seeking to, re to reach that goal. This involves testing, trials, suffering, and small victories until it is achieved. It is at this point that the paths between heroes and mythic characters part company. The hero is successful and his story ends happily ever after, or not. But for mythic status, the hero must return, must bring back his newfound knowledge to help and serve the people, his people, the folk, to be one, the one to whom the people turn, for guidance and instruction. These teachings survive the person themselves and are passed down through generations as tales or songs, poetry, music, opera. Just to clarify, there are, of course, many genres of stories, and, and technically, The Flying Dutchman is a legend, Parsifal and Lohengrin are myth, Hans Sachs comes from folklore, Wagner loved tales that were from the folk, of the folk, by the folk, while fairy tale is sort of a junior version of myth, but it still tells tales from which much can be learned. So how do Wagner's heroes, mythic heroes, match up to these criteria? Parsifal, the ignorant fool who appears from nowhere out of the forest, out of the subconscious, if you think of it. He sees the vision of the grail, but it vanishes and it eludes him because he is not ready. He spends years searching for it, endures trials and encounters with Klingsor, the evil knight, and Kundry, his seductress. He learns truth and returns to the Grail Castle, a wiser man. He heals Amfortas and becomes the new guardian of the Grail. The community honors and reveres him, tells and passes on his story, and myth is born. 
we have the knight in shining armor, Lohengrin, who is Parsifal's son. Lohengrin becomes aware of Elsa's plight. He fights for and wins her. He leads the people of Antwerp to victory and peace, but Elsa asks the forbidden question, and Lohengrin must leave. His last action is to return the young Gottfried, the rightful heir to the throne, to his own land. Again, the community honors and reveres Lohengrin, tells and passes on his story, and myth is born. And then there is Der Fliegende Hollander. This is dis- different. This is a legend, a cautionary tale, for the, cri- the Dutchman does not meet these criteria as written down. Yet this is a mythic in the telling of the tale and in his paying a terrible price for his challenge to the sea, to nature, and the devil. He is cursed by Satan and must sail forever. He meets center and hopes for redemption, which in his case means a merciful death. But feeling betrayed by Senta, he has to return to his life on the sea. She jumps to her death in the sea, bringing about his release and the end of the curse. In their death, their souls are united. So the legend now tells of a Dutch merchantman ship which sailed from Holland to the Dutch East Indies long ago in search of highly prized precious spices from the Far East. To reach these spices, the ship had to sail around the Cape of Good Hope, or the Cape of Storms, as it was known then. Let's hear how Wagner himself talked about the inspiration for Die Fliegende Hollander, and this quote comes uh, from his book, Music and Drama. In the Mythos of the Flying Dutchman, that seaman's poem from the World Historical Age of Journeys of Discovery, we light upon a remarkable mixture a blend effected by the spirit of the folk, of the character of Ulysses and that of the wandering Jew. The mariner, in punishment for his temerity, is condemned by the devil to do battle with the unresting waves for all time. Like Ahuseras, he yearns for his sufferings to be ended by death. The Dutchman, however, may gain this redemption, denied to the undying Jew, at the hands of a woman, who for very love shall sacrifice herself for him. This is the flying Dutchman who arose so often from the swamps and billows of my own life and drew me to him with such resistless might. This was the first folk poem that forced its way into my heart and called on me as a man and an artist to point its meaning and mold it as a work of art. From here begins my career as a poet, and my farewell to the mere concocter of opera texts. My course was new. It was bidden by me by an inner mood and forced upon me by the pressing need to impart this mood to others in order to enfranchise myself from within, outward, to share what he has experienced. I was driven to strike out for myself as an artist, a path as yet not pointed to me by any outward experience, That which drives a man is necessity, deeply felt, incognizable by practical reason, but by overmastering necessity. That's an interesting quote, I think, about how this came into being. And he references Ulysses and the wandering Jew. But of course, there are other men who are enthralled to the devil. The classic tale of Faust, of course, 
who seeks knowledge which he cannot find by conventional means, so he turns to the devil and sells his soul. Or Moby Dick, whose Captain Ahab defies the ocean and God in his relentless quest to kill the whale, and in so doing dies, destroying his crew and the ship in his quest for vengeance. Or the ancient mariner condemned to sail the seas forever in a poem by Samuel Coleridge. Now Wagner clearly, I think, identified with these solitary and troubled men, for he too was a wanderer and an outcast for most of his life, well, much of his life. The lonely men of his operas must make their journeys alone with little guidance. Think of Parsifal, who emerges from the forest, as do Siegmund and Siegfried before him. The legend of the Dutchman was popular in England in the 1800s with both a novel and a play written in the story. The sailing around the Cape of Good Hope was notorious for its treacherous waters, and this is because the currents of the east and the west sides of South Africa come together at this point. It's still a very dangerous uh, sailing. The legend of the Dutchman appeared from the time of the Dutch explorers around the Cope, emerging from ghost stories of mysterious phantom ships with vanishing captains and crews, all lost at sea. The men on these sailing ships were superstitious, fearful of the mighty sea and its power. Sailors spooked by massive storms and threats to their lives. So it's not surprising that such a story came into being. Captain Marriott wrote in the 1839 novel, The Phantom Ship, a variation on the old legend in which Captain Heinrich van der Decken sailed the merchantman ship from Amsterdam in 1680 to the Dutch East Indies. Numerous sightings of the Dutchman ship have been reported ever since. Uh, there's a great story of King George V in England when he was a much younger man and a naval cadet uh, before coming king. He actually saw the ghostly ship off the Cape of Good Hope when the sailor at the top of the mask of his ship called out a sighting of the ghostly ship before falling to his death on the deck. Sightings of the Dutchman ship generally happened in stormy seas and always resulted in numerous deaths, and this is well documented. Wagner's main source was a report from a German writer, Heinrich Heine, in his book Memoirs of Herr von Schnabelowski. Heine embellished the legend with a lovely little anecdote that I want to read you because it gives a flavor of where this whole thing came from. Uh, this is from Heine's tale. You may know the legend of the Flying Dutchman. It's a story about the doomed ship which will never come to harbor and which has been roaming the seas since time immemorial. When it encounters another vessel, some of its ghostly sailors row across in a boat and beg the others to take letters home for them. These letters have to be nailed to the mast, otherwise some misfortune will strike the ship, especially if there's no Bible on board or no horseshoe nailed upside down on the foremast. The letters are always addressed to people whom no one knows, who have been dead for many years, so that some distant descendants receives a letter addressed to a great-great-grandmother who for centuries has been slumbering in her grave. That wooden spectre, that grim and grisly ship, owes its name to its captain, a Dutchman, who once swore by all the devils in hell that he would sail around a certain cape, even if he had to sail 
until the day of judgment. The devil took him at his word, and so he must roam the seas forever until he is redeemed by a woman's fidelity. Being stupid, Haydn writes, the devil does not believe in the fidelity of women, so he has allowed the doomed captain to come on shore once every seven years and get married in an attempt to achieve redemption. Poor Dutchman. Time and time again, he has been only too glad to set, be set free from marriage and his redeemer and get back on board his ship. You can see where this writer is coming from. So Heine is the whole, his story is set actually in Scotland. He describes the Dutchman's meeting with Senta and the final scene in which Senta shows us, throws herself into the sea as the Dutchman's ship sinks. Um, Heine's is a cynical, tongue-in-cheek retelling. Wagner turns it into a myth. Wagner anchored his Dutchman tale not at the Cape or in Scotland, but in Sandvika on the Norwegian coast for very personal reasons in what became for him a mythic setting. He wrote in his book, Mein Leben, how he and his wife, Minna, and their Newfoundland dog, Robber, they fled debtors in Riga and set sail for London. They were blown off course in a storm, and their ship sheltered in Sandvika uh, amidst the fjords of Norway. Uh, let me read again uh, Wagner's account of this. The captain was obliged to seek shelter at a harbor on the Norwegian coast, where Wagner found a scene that would become the setting of the first act of Dutchman. What I had taken to be a continuous line of cliffs, he wrote, turned out on our approach to be a series of separate rocks projecting from the sea. The hurricane was so broken up by the rocks in our rear that the further we sailed through this ever-changing labyrinth of particular rocks, the calmer the sea became. A feeling of indescribable content came over me when the enormous granite walls echoed the hail of the crew as they cast anchor and furled the sails. The sharp rhythm of this call clung to me like an omen of good cheer and shaped itself presently into the theme of the seaman's song in my Fliegender Hollander. And let's hear now the sailor's song. the Dutchman comes ashore in Sandvika against all odds. He meets a sea captain, Darland, to whom he gives great riches and jewels in order to meet and wed the captain's daughter, Senta. Senta is a dreamer who spins her spinning wheel while gazing at the portrait of the doomed flying Dutchman. 
In Francois Giraud's staging of the Flying Dutchman here in the Met in 2020, which is coming back in a little while, I think, Center is obsessed by the Dutchman's portrait. Let's hear now directly from the director about his interpretation. We want a very simplified version of the Dutchman, like this is a story of a, a, a young woman, Santa, who is so obsessed with the picture and is looking at it so intensely that she will eventually be swallowed by it and actually transfer herself into that world. So it, it is based on the belief of what a tableau or an image could do, and this is what Santa is experiencing. She is thrown into the portrait of the Dutchman. One of the uh, difficult aspects of uh, dealing with the Dutchman is the, the ghost factor. Probably the first thing we needed to resolve is that problem. How do you signify the supernatural nature of the Dutchman on stage? We are basically creating a virtual shadow of the Dutchman. When the Dutchman walks on stage, he will carry with him a live generated shadow and that shadow will be triggered by a dancer off stage who will mimic every gesture of the singer. The journey of the Dutchman uh, has some kind of a spiritual resonance in, in our production. One big inspiration was the diary of Wagner, what he wrote on his way to Paris from Riga. He had to stop in Norway, take refuge protect himself from a uh, huge storm. And we went into research these villages where he actually had the seed idea for the Dutchman and where he lived that storm. And it's a rocky land and the fjords of Norway and also the villages and the fishermen. So we actually centered our staging and that includes sets, rocks, costumes, sailors, fishermen, and used that as the uh, seed inspiration for all elements. Our mission is to capture the essence of a piece and try to make it resonate for an audience. In here, completely, I think it's the obsession of a ghost, a portrait, a, another world, the other world, the uh, au-delà, we say in French. And I think, I think if we, um, my aim is to try to capture that and engrave that in anyone's memory. is up and seven more years have gone, weary of the sea, cast me up on land, proud ocean. Soon you shall bear me again, your spite is fitful, but my torment is eternal. The grace I seek on land never shall I find. To you, ocean tides, I shall be true until your last wave breaks and you are drained dry. How often into the sea's deepest moor have I longingly hurled myself, yet death I have not found. There in the awful tomb of ships I drove mine onto the rocks, but alas, no tomb closed over me. Mockingly I defied the pirate in fierce combat, I hoped for death. Here I cried, show me your prowess, with treasure my ship is filled. 
Alas, the sea's barbarous son crossed himself in terror and fled. Nowhere a grave, never death. This is damnation's dread command. And here then, I'm going to play you this uh, aria so you can hear it. At this point, right in the middle, there's a pause, there's a gentle timpani as his thoughts change and he looks up to the angel. You, I ask, blessed angel of God, who won for me the terms of my salvation, was I the sorry plaything of your scorn when you showed me the way to redemption? Vain hope, terrible, futile folly. There is no eternal fidelity on earth. Only one hope is left to me, only one that is undestroyed. While earth's seeds may long thrive, yet one day earth too must end. Day of judgment, day of doom. When will you dawn and end my night? When will resound the crack of doom rending the earth asunder? When all the dead rise up, then I shall fade into the void. Worlds end your course, eternal destruction. Take me.
of course, is the voice of the great James Morris, well-loved and known in this house. I love his sec second section of this aria. There's a tenderness in the way he speaks to that angel, such contrast to the, the anger of the earlier part. It's amazing. The Dutchman then appears at Santa's house with her father, and she recognizes him at once. She's not afraid. Santa's ballad is almost an incantation. She conjures up the Dutchman so that when he appears at her door, he, she already knows who he is, and he, in turn, recognizes her. The way Wagner wanted this meeting to be staged is actually fascinating, for the two should stand stock still, gazing at one another, but making no effort to approach, as if they are in a trance. The Dutchman asks if she will be true, true unto death, and she replies. Let's uh, listen to that now.
that, in essence, is the love duet from the Flying Dutchman. All goes south from there. So the Dutchman comes to love Center, but believing her to be unfaithful, he ultimately leaves her, unwilling to be the cause of her destruction. Rather like Lohengrin, he too, things happen and he has to leave. The Dutchman storms off to his ship, Center breaks free from her father, and then Eric, who is her sort of unofficial fiancé, um, is tries to hold her back, but she climbs a cliff as the Dutchman's ghostly ship weighs anchor. She jumps into the sea crying, I was ever true to thee. In the final scene, the Dutchman comes across Eric, um, Santa's former boyfriend, and pleading with her, and the Dutchman cries out, Valoran, abandoned, all is lost, to sea, to sea for all time, set the sails, anchor up. Santa cries, she is, she is faithful, and the Dutchman then tells of their fate. I'm just going to read you a little of this. At this point, he cries out, uh, Here learn the fate from which thou wilt be saved. A woman's hand alone can lighten the curse, if she will love me until death be true. Who breaks the troth which they have to me plighted, endless damnation is their doom. Thou knowest me not who I am, but ask the sea in every clime, or ask the seamen who have crossed the ocean wide. They know my ship, the flying Dutchman, I am called. Wagner's directions at the very end of the opera state, Center flings herself into the sea, and at the same moment the Dutchman's ship sinks rapidly and disappears as a wreck. Then in the far distance, in the music of the Dutchman and Center, he, they are seen together, he embracing her, they rise out of the water, up from the water in some way, both transfigured beyond life in death. So let me play for you now a version with Franz Grundheber as the Dutchman and Hildegard Behrens as Center.
das Geschick, vor dem ich dich bewahre. Verdammt bin ich zum grässlichsten der Lose, zehnfach vertont, wer mir erwünscht
So just a final comment on this. Wagner said in 1851, the Flying Dutchman is a mythical creation of the folk. It gives emotional, compelling expression to a timeless feature of human nature. This feature, in a general sense, is the longing for peace amidst the storms of life. That was Guild lecturer Desiree Mays discussing the myth and mythos of Wagner's male characters. Be sure to join us next week for the second part of this program. Wagner's De Flinge de Hollander returns to performances on the Met stage in May. Be sure to follow the Metropolitan Opera Guild, Opera News, and the Metropolitan Opera on your favorite social media platforms to keep up to date on all things opera. I'm your host, Stuart Holt, and thank you so much for listening.